This morning, uh, we're going to be looking at a, a, a large section of Scripture, so it's obviously going to be of an, an overview form. Um, so that's your, your precursor. We're going to look at Romans chapter 1 and verses 16 to 32. Um, perhaps familiar words, but uh, hopefully still uh, useful as we look at it today. So Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 16, let's hear what God has to say to us through the pen of the Apostle Paul. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation in the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, Boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, if we did not know that you had given up your son for us, these words could feel very uh, hopeless. But indeed you have. And you have located your power for salvation in the gospel. Help us to understand who you are, how good this gospel is to rejoice in it ourselves and to bless others 
as we think rightly about you. Holy Spirit, I am helpless to preach this with any kind of effectiveness without you. So bear your word out and use your servant. Open all our hearts to what you would say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is um, good to be with you. I should have said that earlier. I'm uh, glad. It's my privilege really to to walk alongside Grace as you continue to wait on God's provision of a a new long-term pastor. Uh, This morning I have a very simple, uh, very simple assignment that I want to help you do, that I want to help you with. I want you to realize why thinking about God rightly is so important. Um, I want you to think more deeply about God, that you might sense his love for you, and thus you would love him more and love those around you more as a result. Remember, this is the biblical pattern. This is the biblical flow of love. 1 John 4.19, maybe you can say it with me, we love because he first loved us. So our loving is a response to sensing our love that we've been loved by God. But who is this God that has loved us? Our objective, simple objective, is to make our way through the second half of Romans 1, which reveals to us why it's so crucial that you know God as he's revealed himself to be. What I hope that we'll do is to learn, or learn in a more full way, who it is that has loved us. Why is this so important? It's not too much to say that all of the major problems in the world, Ukraine, struggles between people groups here in the U.S. and abroad, even the pride and envy in my heart and your heart. These things flow from not being completely overtaken by a profound and life-changing knowledge of God. That kind of knowledge of God issues forth in a life of resounding, even raucous thanks that's apparent in its orientation outward to people and away from self. And thus, we have God's call here in Romans 1 to bless others by thinking rightly about him. Um, I'm sorry this is not an official Presbyterian sermon. I do not have three points. I have four. The first, if you're a note taker, is to see the gospel as the center and solution. Look with me at verses 16 and 17. Here we find God saying through Paul, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why not to be? Because it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God has chosen to take his power and to focus it in, in this message that's, that is, goes under the label, the gospel. Uh, Paul's trying to preach the gospel to the Romans, particularly through the first eight chapters of this book. Um, as we learn in those chapters that salvation uh, is a, a past occurrence for those who've come to Christ, 
They have been saved. Uh, we call that justification, if you want the fancy word. Uh, we think about people and their ongoing transformation under the gospel. We call that sanctification. That's also where the power of God exists under the gospel for salvation. We're being saved. And in the future, we will be saved. Glorification. Three tenses of salvation. All that we hear about in the gospel. It's where God puts his power. It's why Paul's not ashamed of it. And why it's what we are to proclaim. This righteousness that comes from God, it's given to us through Christ and apprehended by faith. Why is this so important? Why is Paul focused in on the gospel as the center and solution? Well, think of it maybe this way. What problem does the gospel solve for people, at least initially? What does it solve? Look with me at verse 18. For the wrath of God. Now, even just to say those words out loud in our culture is seen by some people as, oh, you Christians, you, you believe in this, this angry God. We, we, we couldn't possibly believe in that. Well, why do God's a person? Why do people get angry? Uh, anger, uh, the people who uh, theorize about this and teach us about it, anger is a secondary emotion. It's not a primary emotion. The primary emotion that sits behind anger is hurt. And for God, he is righteously hurt. And so he has a righteous anger. Why is God righteously hurt? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress the truth. Uh, think of it this way. If you've ever played uh, water volleyball, right? You've got two teams, and they're playing, and uh, they're joking around or whatever, and everybody's like, well, where's the ball? And here's somebody kind of sitting on it, um, suppressing it below the water. And that's what we tend to do with the truth. The truth about God. The truth about His ways. Why is God hurt? And thus angry, even wrathful over people's sins, my sin, your sin. It's ours. It's, it's my and your truth suppression. And so let's for a moment grieve our truth suppression. Keep going with me. Verse 19. What do we tend to suppress? For what can be known about God is plain to them, plain to all humans in the world, because God has shown it to them. How does he show it to them? The heavens declare the glory of God. It's obvious I love to look at the backsides of flowers. Um, next time the flowers come up in the spring, look at the backsides of the petals that no one ever sees and no one ever has to. And their artistry. Absolute artistry. What can be known about God is plain to them because God's shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely what's obvious, his eternal power, his divine nature, they've been clearly perceived. They're obvious if you look. Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We're meant to look at what's been made and to read the message therein. But we suppress that. But it's there. The testimony's there. And so they're without excuse because God has shown it to them. 
For although, verse 21, for although they knew God generally, not personally, but generally they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Instead, because they didn't do those things, not honor God, not give thanks to him, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Um, I love the ESV study Bible. If you don't have one, get one. Um, that's tremendously helpful. I like quoting from it because it's non-technical, um, but super, super, super helpful for the, the lay Christian. Don't have to know any languages or any fancy theology or anything. It's just helpful. Here's what the study Bible says. The root sin is the failure to value God above all things so that he is not honored and praised as he should be. Human beings are foolish, not in the sense that they're intellectually deficient, but they're foolish in their rejection of God's lordship over their lives. They knew God not in a saving sense, but they knew of his existence and his attributes. Keep going on the text, verse 22. Claiming to be wise, we've got wisdom, but in reality, they became fools. And in their foolishness, what do we do? Verse 23, we give an exchange. We exchange the glory of the immortal God, the one as we sang, love this song, to God and to the Lamb who is the great I Am. Moses goes to God and says, um, and you are, and God says, I am. Jesus, through the gospel, John's gospel, right? Seven, seven I ams. I, I just exist. Right? So we exchange the glory of the immortal God for what? For images. In the Bible reading that I do, I read through the Bible once, I listen through the Bible once a year. And um, we've just gone through recently in the reading through the Isaiah, the 40s of Isaiah, and then it's amazing that, that God kinds of um, derides this making of an image that then you, you bow down to. Our images today uh, are not, um, uh, one person's put it, they're not metal, but mental. We worship ideas and thoughts and aspirations. We make idols. Not physical ones, but heart ones. We exchange, we're, we're like this, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So we may not make the physical idols. You see, say, for example, Isaiah 44, 9 and following but we certainly center other things in our lives than God. Coming to live as a Christian in daily repentance and faith is to grieve my own truth suppression. To grieve my, this is a Don Carson-ism, uh, 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 to grieve my, my de-godding of God by considering Him unworthy and instead, and instead seeking to manage my own life by sinning. You do realize that that's what sin is, right? It's my attempt, it's your attempt, that in the moment to manage my own life on my own terms. 
that this is the way I'm going to handle this moment. I'm going to take authority. I'm going to decide what should be done, and I do it. And in that moment, I make myself God, and I de-God God. And that's what we repent of, right? Is centering ourselves instead of centering God, centering our wisdom instead of God's. Are you turning from that? Is that how you think about what Christianity is, the message of Christianity is trying to say that this call to repent and to believe is, is to repent of me centering myself, is to stop trying to manage my own life, and instead to hand over management to Christ, to say, I need you, rule over me, you're a good God. I want your ways, not mine. Is that your daily habit of life? Is that what you're doing? Well, just as we have an understandable response, uh, we get hurt, right? And so we get angry. Just as we have an understandable response to people who disrespect us, so also does God. And so let's understand then third, God's response to us refusing reality. Look with me in verse 24. How does God respond? Verse 24, therefore... God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. So what do we do? We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images. What does God do? God says, fine. You think you're wise? Have at it. See if you can get satisfaction there. Good luck with that. Sorry, New Yorker. God speaks very directly and bluntly and Maybe with a little bit of a sarcastic tone to me. So I apologize if that's offensive. Fine, have it your way. But it won't be good. When God calls us to repentance, he does it with tears in his eyes. And he says, would you please stop thinking that you're wise and I'm foolish? Would you please? But fine, if you think you're wise, it'll be bad for you. It'll be bad for human community. But okay, that's what you want. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The study Bible again, all individual sins are a consequence of the failure to prize and praise God as the giver of every good thing. Well, what happens when God gives us over to our supposed wisdom? Because, verse 25, we, this is the general principle here that Paul's telling us, that we exchange the truth about God. It's unclear to me why the study Bible picks, or the ESV picks A here, it should be the... They exchange the truth about God for the lie. And what is the single lie? Worship and serving the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. The structure of reality um, is that essentially reality is made up of two entities. Two, reality is, exists in, in two ways. It exists in God who predates creation and time and everything else. 
Even to say predate is hard. We don't know how to get out of talking about time-bounded language. Next week I'm preaching in a church and talking about God's eternality, and that's um, challenging because we're so bound within time. But God existed um, and created the world. He's outside of the world. He's distinct from the world. So there's God and creation. There's two in the structure of reality. But when we do this suppressing the truth, we act as though there's only one. We act as though there's only that which is in creation. And that becomes self-referential. We reference what we think will make us happy and then we go do it. So we exchange the worship of the God who made everything and who is external to the world but works within the world. We exchange worship for Him for something that is within the world and that is the lie. To worship something made. It's the origin of all other world religions. The worship of something made rather than the maker. So what happens? God gives us over. Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Uh, and what, are the, what, were the, what were some of those? The women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. That word nature is very important, right? Because there is a creator, there is a creation, and there's a givenness to creation. There's a way that God made things to work and to be. But if people come along and they go, now we know better, God's like, okay, it'll be bad for you. But if you think that'll make you happy. There are women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men also natural relations gave up natural relations with women, consumed with passion for one another, men commuting shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit, verse 28, to acknowledge God as God, God gave them up to a debased mind. Right? Futile in their thinking, verse 21, debased mind here. And what happens when God gives us up to that? To what ought not to be done? We get filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. Notice the destruction that happens to humans and to human community when God gives us over to our own supposed wisdom. Listen to the, all the ways that this destroys people and lives in the world. All manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, maliciousness, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. Yes, that's for kids that are underage, but it's also for us folks who have aging parents that perhaps struggle to honor them as we ought. It's a form of disobedience to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And although we know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die and only do them, they give approval to those who practice them. Look at all of the people damage that happens when we suppress the truth. Now, much could be said 
maybe at another time about many of these sins, but for now, I just want you to notice how damaging they are. This is part of the reason why God gets upset at sin. Sin not only offends Him, but it damages ourselves. It damages others. God's ways are compassionate. He knows how humans and human community work best as our Creator. Let me say it again, but in a different way. All sin flows from people like you and I refusing God. Maybe overall, but certainly in the moment. And it is certainly worth your meditation to think through, to roll over in your mind, how am I refusing God? Or what, what, what about God am I not acknowledging when I sin in this way? That is worthy of your meditation. Meditating on the Bible and meditating on God's character revealed there and meditating in the gospel is incredibly important. Uh, everywhere I go as I travel around the country, I really encourage people in the practice of Christian meditation, of rolling around in your minds truths about God, about the gospel, things that you learn from the scriptures. And sometimes people come back to me as I pastored here locally down in West Seattle for a decade. Now as I travel around the country and I preach and teach and help churches, people say to me, well, yeah, I know, it used to be that people meditate, but I, I, don't, I, I can't meditate, I'm too, too ADD. Could I kindly challenge you that actually everyone meditates? Everyone rolls certain things around in their mind. It's simply what you roll around. We roll around our, our insecurities. I was nervous coming this morning. We roll in our, around in our minds the hurts that we've received from others. We roll around in our minds what we wish had happened and what we dread that did. All of us roll things around in our mind. It's just what, friends, we roll around. Well, if you consider that sin is refusing God, perhaps you can understand God's response to us refusing reality. And this is what makes the gospel such an amazing message. You see, the very God who could rightly just write us off as rebels... Instead, he doesn't do that. He solves our problem by sending his own son to accomplish everything needed so we could be received in the family. I was listening to a message this morning on this passage uh, from an old seminary professor of mine who's a dear friend, and he reminded me that something that I had forgotten. Uh, here in Romans 1, uh, we're three times God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them up. But over in Romans 8.32, you might remember another giving up. Another giving over. It's the same phrase. But there, we learn that God's love is a kind that he gives his, over his own son to death. So the sin of us rebels can be forgiven and we can be received into the family. This is the amazing truth that we celebrate when we come to the table that's furnished with the broken body of Jesus punished in our place of righteous Jesus. 
Punished not for his sins, but for ours. The blood of Jesus poured out. Why? Because we so desperately need forgiveness for our truth suppression, for our rebellion, for our de-godding of God. And what does God call us to? Just lay down your rebellion. Stop refusing me. Come to me. Renounce your own wisdom. Rely on my son, Jesus. That's the pleading, merciful call of the gospel to us. And when we do that, when we're actively, daily embracing the gospel ourselves, we put ourselves in the place where instead of sinning against other people in in these ways, we instead get the opportunity, last then, to bless others by thinking rightly about God. You you see, if we're embracing the gospel that's the power of God for salvation, if we're embracing the God that's revealed in the scriptures, then we are in the place to bless others. Specifically, by speaking the gospel to them. The gospel that we're embracing. The gospel that we're treasuring as we treasure the God who has spoken to us in the gospel. How could that happen in your life? How could you How could you bless others by thinking rightly about God? The ideal scenario is that someone in your life where you live, work, or play scoffs at the idea of God. I love in the song, you guys did an awesome job putting the bulletin together today. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out, among the scoffers. The ideal scenario is that someone in your life where you live, work, or play, they scoff at belief in God. Oh, God. People used to believe in God. I was recently uh, working with a church on the East Coast, and I was driving past their building, and I I was, as I drove past the building to go to lunch with somebody, the thought came to my mind that when people drive past that building, some of them, likely say to themselves, a church, what an anachronism. What a throwback to our less evolved selves. Well, what can you say to a scoffer, to someone who scoffs at belief in the merciful creator God? Uh, The first thing that you should recognize is that the, the hubris that's involved in thinking we have evolved past belief in God is simply the 21st century example of the same kind of truth suppression that God speaks to us through Paul in this passage. It's the same kind of thing. It's just through an evolutionary technological mindset. Nothing new under the sun. The second thing, to a person who thinks or speaks like that, what my desire would be for myself and for you is that with enthusiasm, you could say, you wouldn't say that if you knew God. I know him. He's fascinating. He's wonderful. And he's worth following. Knowing him and what he's done and is doing in the world, you know what effect it's had on me? It's helped me feel settled and happy and hopeful. And if you want, I'd be happy to tell you about it. Now, if you did that, because you did know this God, rightly, 
then you'd begin to bless others through your gospel proclamation. Let's pray that that would be the case as we come to the Lord's table together. Father, how I want for myself and for these friends here that we would think rightly about you. You're certainly worthy of it. And it is certainly better for us when we do. So help us to. Help us to embrace you in the way that you've revealed yourself to be in the Scriptures. Help us to put down our wisdom, our foolishness, and instead to come to you humbly. To come to you turning from our own ways and turning to Jesus. Help us to know you in a way that we are enthusiastic and infectious about you. That we um, uh, freely give you away to others. For you're worthy of that. And it would be better for other people if they knew you too. So this is the way that we can love people well. Help us sense that we are loved. Help us to sense the enormity that you, though you could have rightly given us over to our sin. Instead, you gave over your son. We come to the table to celebrate that, to enjoy that. Convince us that that is true. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.